Hi there, I'm Travis, and this is the Why Is That Podcast. Welcome back to the Why Is That Podcast. The introduction this week was the rock adaptation of God Save the Queen by the band Queen. Tomorrow, May 21st, 2018, is known as Victoria Day in parts of Scotland and Canada, not to be confused with the holiday in Sweden. It is a celebration in honor of Queen Victoria's birthday, which was May 24th, 1819, but it is also a good excuse to have a long weekend just as the weather is starting to get better. It is sometimes known as the May 2-4 holiday, as it is a statutory holiday celebrated on the penultimate Monday of the month of May, so it allows for a three-day weekend, which is always a good excuse to drink a whole case of beer, a case of beer, of course, having 24 beers in it. May 24th, 24 beers. It works. Queen Victoria was a fascinating individual, and we could spend an episode talking about her, the Victorian age, the holiday, and about a dozen other things that have to do with her legacy. But for this first year of the podcast, I'm going to use her holiday to segue us into discussing the Acts of Union and why the United Kingdom is the United Kingdom. That is, why the United Kingdom is one country or kingdom that contains four other countries, those countries being England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. The genesis of the United Kingdom did not really occur until the Norman Kingdom of England was formed after the Battle of Hastings in 1066. But for all of you who are interested, I'm going to make an effort to describe the history of Great Britain and Ireland prior to that in a single paragraph. It is unknown exactly when human habitation began in Great Britain and Ireland. The Red Lady of Papalant represents the oldest known ceremonial burial in Western Europe and was found in South Wales. The burial is estimated to have occurred 33,000 years ago. Great Britain and Ireland were connected until 14,000 years ago, and a land bridge is said to have connected Great Britain to Europe until 8,000 years ago. Minimal information is known about the early people. Stonehenge is said to have been built somewhere around 3000 to 2000 BCE. Julius Caesar first invaded Britannia in 55 BCE, but the Romans did not conquer Britain until the year 43 CE. Rome then ruled Britain until 410 CE and was routinely at odds with the Celtic tribes. After Roman rule ended, Great Britain was invaded by Germanic tribes, namely the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes, who combined are known as the Anglo-Saxons. In the 9th century, Gaelic tribes from Ireland invaded the north and absorbed the Picts and Britons to form the Kingdom of Scotland. The Anglo-Saxons became the power in southeast of Great Britain and would soon become known as the English, or at the time the Anglican, which meant family of the Angles. The people who lived on Great Britain prior to the invaders were commonly known as the Britons, though the Germanic people referred to them as the Welsh. They came to control the southwest of Great Britain, which became Wales. Ireland, being a little further away from Europe and various other reasons, stayed a wee bit more independent through these early years and was said to have as many as 16 separate nations, at least according to Claudius Ptolemy. In the 7th and 8th century, the nation started to unify, but the big power came when the Vikings invaded and established the Kingdom of Dublin. Okay, that gives you a rough idea of the early history of what would become the United Kingdom. We are now ready to discuss how the Normans changed everything. 
The Normans were a group of Vikings, or Norsemen, who settled in northern France and established the Duchy of Normandy. The Normans would eventually send out expeditions of conquest and colonization, including a campaign to the island of Britain. It is all a little bit confusing, and certainly disputed, but according to the Normans, the King of England, Edward the Confessor, named the Duke of Normandy his lawful successor, and therefore heir to the English throne. That Duke of Normandy was who we today call William the Conqueror. William was Edward's first cousin once removed, meaning that William was the son of Edward's first cousin, and as Edward was childless, passing the crown to William would be a way to keep the crown in the family. The controversy came when Edward the Confessor decided to make a deathbed promise to Harold Godwinson to make Harold his heir. This created a succession crisis as the two heirs laid claim to the throne. William claimed that he was the rightful heir and led his Normans on an invasion that creatively came to be known as the Norman Invasion. This invasion culminated in October of 1066 with the Battle of Hastings. The Battle of Hastings was won by William, and with the victory, William became the first Norman king of England. While there have been some upheavals, William and his descendants have ruled England ever since the Battle of Hastings. Queen Elizabeth II, the current Queen of the United Kingdom, and the other Commonwealth realms, is the 24th great-granddaughter of William the Conqueror. William's fourth son, Henry I, would be the third Norman King of England and would marry and have children with Matilda of Scotland. It is through Henry's lineage that Elizabeth II is related to William, but through Matilda she can actually trace her lineage all the way back to Alfred the Great, who was King of the Anglo-Saxons starting in the year 871. And it is really impressive that those two families have in one way or another ruled over England for over 1100 years. So anyways, William the Conqueror won the Battle of Hastings in 1066 and established the throne of England. In the years that followed, he would continue to solidify his reign, and his descendants would continue to spread the influence of the Normans throughout Great Britain and Ireland. That Battle of Hastings established the throne of England, and that same throne would one day be absorbed into the United Kingdom. The kings of England would continue to hold the title of Duke of Normandy as well, until the year 1204, when Philip II of France forced King John of England off the continent, and then in the Treaty of Paris in 1259, King Henry III acknowledged the loss and renounced his claim, and thereafter only ruled the Kingdom of England. The islands just get complicated, so we will avoid those for this tale. The Kingdom of England and the crown that would be passed to Queen Elizabeth II was established by the Battle of Hastings. The next milestone on the path to the United Kingdom was the Laws and Wales Act of 1535 and 1542. To discuss those, let's move over to Wales. The medieval chronicler Gerald of Wales, who lived from 1146 to 1223, once described Wales as a country very strongly defended by high mountains, deep valleys, extensive woods, rivers, and marshes, insomuch that from the time the Saxons took possession of the island, the remnants of the Britons, retiring into these regions, could never be entirely subdued either by the English or by the Normans. Gerald's quote gives us a good picture of the early Wales. As I mentioned earlier, the original inhabitants of the island of Britannia were known as the Britons. When the Roman Empire ended their occupation of Britain, typically dated to 410, the Britons retreated to this naturally well-defended area to establish their own territory, separate from the various invading Germanic tribes. The Welsh are considered to be a part of the Celtic language and traditions. The Celtic nations typically refer to Scotland, Ireland, the Isle of Man, Cornwall, Brittany, and Wales. Sources show that the people of Wales typically referred to themselves as the Cymri, and the English referred to them as the Welsh. 
In English, the Welsh distinction has remained, though in the language of Welsh, it is still Kimru. In 1057, the various nations of Wales were unified by Gruffid ap Lewin, and that was almost assuredly mispronounced. My apologies. Nine years later, the Normans established the Norman Kingdom of England, and for the next 200 years, the two regions were regularly at war. The Normans were hell-bent on taking over all of Britain and Ireland, and of course they eventually would. Saying Kingdom of Wales is kind of a simplification and does not tell nearly the full story. The leaders of Wales have held various titles over the years that included King of the Britons, King of all the Welsh, King of Wales, Head of Wales, Prince of Wales, and it does not even begin to mention the areas of Duhabarth, Gwynedd, and Powys. So just know that when I say Wales in this early time period, I'm really simplifying things in order to tell a coherent story. So the Norman conquest of Wales occurred from 1277 to 1283 under the reign of Edward I of England, also known as Edward Longshanks. The conquest resulted in an English victory which brought the Kingdom of England hegemony over the Principality of Wales. The arrangement was formalized in the Statute of Rudlon, also known as the Statute of Wales, on March 3, 1284. The statute was a royal ordinance that intended to settle the government of Wales. It introduced English common law in regards to criminal cases, but Welsh customs persisted in civil proceedings and in certain other areas of society. The statute then formed the basis of the Welsh government, at least in North Wales, until 1536. In the year 1301, King Edward I gave his son and heir the title of Prince of Wales. From that point forward, Wales was effectively a part of the Kingdom of England, even though the principality spoke a different language. The title of Prince of Wales has since been routinely held by the heir to the English or British throne. For instance, Prince Charles, the son of Queen Elizabeth II and current first in line to the throne, is the current Prince of Wales. After the War of the Roses, the political power of the Principality of Wales was a little out of whack as so many of the marcher lords died, and the rivals for the throne used Welsh armies that largely killed each other. The War of the Roses ended with the rise of the House of Tudor as the new ruling family in 1485. The Tudors were from Wales and knew that they had to realign the relationship between England and Wales after all the fighting. During the reign of Henry VIII, the second Tudor king, the Laws and Wales Act of 1535 and 1542 were passed and given royal ascension. Prior to the Laws and Wales Acts of 1535 and 1542, Wales did not have parliamentary representation and was divided between the Principality of Wales and several feudal states under the Marcher Lords. The law saw Wales become a full and equal part of the Kingdom of England, with the intention being to create a single state and legal jurisdiction. A sentence of the laws read as follows. That his said country or dominion of Wales shall be, stand, and continue forever from henceforth incorporated, united, and annexed to, and with this, his realm of England. In other words, the Laws and Wales Acts made Wales and England a single state under the banner of the Kingdom of England. With the Laws and Wales Acts, Wales started electing members of the Parliament to represent their interests in Westminster, and have since jointly run their affairs first with the Kingdom of England, then the Kingdom of Great Britain, and finally with the United Kingdom. Wales is today considered a country in its own right due to its long history and tradition, but also due to their degree of autonomy that was gained through a process known as devolution. The Government of Wales Act of 1998 led to the establishment of the National Assembly of Wales, and that National Assembly has since been able to pass laws specifically in reference to the people of Wales. This power allows Wales to be known as the country of Wales within the sovereign state known as the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland.
All right, that gives us a pretty good grip on England and Wales, so let's move on to the Acts of Union of 1706 and 1707, which joined the Kingdom of Scotland with the Kingdom of England, and together formed the Kingdom of Great Britain, which contained England, Scotland, and Wales. To do that, we need to move north to the Kingdom of Scotland. The Kingdom of Scotland is traditionally said to have been founded in the year 843 during the reign of the King of the Picts, Kenneth McAlpine, although scholars also point to Constantine II's reign from 900 to 943 as being key to the early moment of the foundation of Scotland. In those early days, it was also sometimes known as the Kingdom of Alba. The Scottish unification process included Gaelic tribes, Picts, Britons, Scots, Angles, and invading Norsemen, all forming into a single kingdom. The name Scotland came from the Latin word for the Gaelic, Scotia. After the Normans established their control over the Kingdom of England by winning the Battle of Hastings, the Normans set their sights on controlling the whole island of Britain, and to do that they would need to contend with the people of Scotland. The conflict continued for the next few hundred years. There are a few great podcast series out there that get into more detail about the various wars of conflict, independence, retribution, and all the bloodshed in between. Let me know if you want some recommendations, because I'm going to be skipping past them to the year 1603. The year 1603 is notable because that was the year when King James VI of Scotland became King James I of England and Ireland. We will discuss the Ireland part in a few minutes, so just focus on the England piece. As mentioned, the Tudor dynasty came into power in the year 1485 under King Henry VII. King Henry VII's son would of course inherit the throne and become the famous King Henry VIII, but his daughter Margaret Tudor was married to the King of Scotland, James IV. In July of 1567, Margaret Tudor and James IV's great-grandson was crowned the King of Scotland as James VI when he was a year old. After years of regents ruling Scotland, James VI grew to adulthood and took on full kingly duties in the year 1581. Over the next five years, James fostered a friendship with the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth I, sometimes known as the Virgin Queen due to her piety that saw her remain an unmarried virgin her whole life. Her virginity, of course, meant that she had no heirs, and as her half-siblings also had no children, she would be the last of the Tudor line. In 1586, the two kingdoms decided to formalize their friendship with an official peace agreement called the Treaty of Berwick. The treaty was a mutual defense pact that was signed as a way to protect the two Protestant countries from potential invasion from the Catholic powers of Spain and France. It also gave James a £4,000 yearly pension from England, which seemed to indicate that Elizabeth viewed him as her heir to the throne. The money guaranteed James's continued loyalty after Queen Elizabeth executed James's mother the following year. Well, the money and, of course, the chance to be the next King of England. By the year 1601, Queen Elizabeth's chief advisors and prominent English politicians began to set the stage for James's eventual ascension to the English throne. On March 24, 1603, Queen Elizabeth I died and James was proclaimed king in London later that same day in a remarkably smooth transition of power. After his English coronation, the crowns of the kingdoms of England, Scotland, and Ireland were united on the same monarch's head for the first time. James had a few official stylings throughout his life. Until the year 1604, he was known as James VI, King of Scotland. When he was crowned in London, it was as King of England, France, and Ireland, Defender of the Faith. And after he went to Westminster, he issued a proclamation officially changing his style to King of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, Defender of the Faith. He never actually ruled France. That designation is a whole other thing that we're not going to get into today. 
James set the wheels in motion for the eventual official union of the crowns to one formalized kingdom, but he would not live to see the official acceptance by the parliaments of Scotland and England. As a result, the two kingdoms continued to operate somewhat separately and somewhat independently, despite sharing the same monarch. Just a fun aside, it was during James's reign that the Catholic Guy Fawkes attempted to blow up Parliament in the infamous Gunpowder Treason and Plot, famously occurring on the 5th of November, 1605. He would, of course, be unsuccessful, but at least he inspired a pretty neat festival and an even neater graphic novel-slash-film. King James had attempted to unite the kingdoms of Scotland and England into a single kingdom of Great Britain, but the parliaments resisted the idea, specifically in England, where there was fear that the Parliament of England would lose some of its ancient privileges by such a union. So the issue is put at bay. The next hundred years get pretty confusing between the English Civil War, Restoration, Glorious Revolution, and the rest, but the bottom line is that the union of the crowns and the kingdoms did not occur until the year 1707. Queen Anne ascended to the thrones of England, Scotland, and Ireland in the year 1702 with the goal of establishing deeper political integration between England and Scotland. Through this process, she finally convinced the parliaments of England and Scotland to agree to participate in fresh negotiations about the potential for a union treaty in the year 1705. The negotiations eventually resulted in a treaty of union that was agreed upon on July 22, 1706, before passing through both the English and Scottish parliaments. The final acts became known as the Acts of Union and officially came into force on May 1, 1707. And from that point forward, the kingdoms of England and Scotland officially united to form one kingdom known as the Kingdom of Great Britain. Similarly to Wales, Scotland is also considered a country within the sovereign state of the United Kingdom. Again, this is due to tradition, but also the movements in the 20th century that resulted in a devolved legislature for Scotland. The Scotland Act of 1998 officially established the Parliament of Scotland and provided significant local power to the country of Scotland. Next to join the United Kingdom was Ireland, so let's journey across the Irish Sea to the Emerald Isle to discuss that bit. In the early history of Ireland, the island was ruled by a variety of little kingdoms, typically Irish, Gaelic, Celtic, Vikings from Norway, or segments of those groups uniting for a few moments to fight each other, and then going back to fighting each other. After the Normans conquered England, the new Norman English kings wanted to expand their rule. We have already discussed their conflicts with Wales and Scotland, but in the year 1169, the Normans set out to conquer Ireland. The invasion is typically dated as occurring from 1169 to 1171, and from that point forward, Ireland was controlled to some degree as a lordship under the King of England. The lordship of Ireland period did not include control over the whole of the island of Ireland, as there were other warring kings who held it onto pockets of resistance or areas that were wholly independent. But under official papal authority, the island of Ireland belonged to the Kingdom of England. In the year 1542, the Parliament of Ireland decided to end the period of lordship by passing the Crown of Ireland Act of 1542, which proclaimed King Henry VIII of England as the King of Ireland. From this point forward, each King of England also bore the title of King of Ireland. There was some legal wrestling between the Catholic powers and the Protestant powers about the legality of this act, but eventually the monarch of England just kept the pretense and the Catholics of Europe dropped their objections. The Catholics of Ireland were a different story, we'll get to them in a few hundred years. In 1707, when the Acts of Union were passed to unite the Kingdom of England and Scotland into the Kingdom of Great Britain, the Parliament of Ireland sent a letter to Queen Anne congratulating her on the unity of two of her realms and hinted that they would like to join the party with the following words. 
May God put it in your royal heart to add greater strength and luster to your crown by a still more comprehensive union. However, the kingdom of Great Britain did not seem all that interested in uniting with Ireland immediately as they enjoyed the power-sharing agreement, which placed them as the senior partner rather than equal partners with the Catholic-majority island of Ireland. After a very bloody rebellion in 1798 that even included a French invasion of Ireland and calls for Irish independence was put down, the government in London realized it was time to bring the Irishmen into the Union in order to bring them a degree of nationalism with their British brethren. Also, the Catholic majority had recently been enfranchised, and the British wanted to put an end to the Parliament of Ireland before those Catholics had the chance to vote and greatly change the Irish government as a whole. Negotiations began between the Parliament of England and the Parliament of Ireland to formally unite the two kingdoms that were already both ruled by King George III. Yes, the same King George III that ruled during the American Revolutionary War. The Acts of Union of 1800 were passed first by the Parliament of Great Britain on July 2nd, 1800, and then by the Parliament of Ireland on August 1st, 1800. The Acts then came into force with both of the Parliaments becoming defunct and merging into the Parliament of the United Kingdom, which had its first meeting on January 22nd, 1801. King George III was crowned with the single crown of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland on January 1st, 1801. The date of January 1st, 1801 started the sovereign state of the United Kingdom that we know today, and scholars often cite that day as the day modern history of the islands began. The Acts of Union of 1800 remain in force throughout Great Britain and Northern Ireland. The Irish War of Independence was then waged from 1919 to 1921 and saw the establishment of the Republic of Ireland in 1922, which has been an independent sovereign state ever since. Northern Ireland remained loyal to the United Kingdom and through the Government of Ireland Act of 1920 was separated from the Southern Ireland area that would eventually become independent. Similarly to Wales and Scotland, Northern Ireland is considered a country within the United Kingdom today due to the Northern Ireland Act of 1998. The Act devolved the legislature of Northern Ireland and allowed for the Northern Ireland Assembly to have independent powers from the rest of the kingdom. And that is the story for why the United Kingdom is called the United Kingdom and why it has four different countries within its single sovereign state. I know it was a very high level overview, so if anything does not make sense, please let me know and I'll be happy to further explain. I've also posted a link to the British Royal Family Tree in the episode notes, just in case you are curious to see a visual version after all the talk today. Thank you for your time and for listening to today's episode. We'll be back with our regularly scheduled program in two weeks, so make sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app, whether that is Apple Podcasts, Acast, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Podcast Addict, or what have you. Also, if you haven't seen them yet, I make special episode pictures for each episode, so be sure to like the show on Facebook or join the Facebook group so you get all the updates. Otherwise, you can follow me on Twitter at WhyIsThatPod or send me an email at WhyIsThatPod at gmail.com. The sources for today's episode include BritRoyals.com, Lars Brownsworth's podcast Norman Centuries, the Encyclopedia Britannica, Oxford Reference, Britain Express, Wales.com, BBC History, and my history professor Jacqueline DeVry. This has been the Why Is That Podcast. Cheers. <laughs>